Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 116 of the GDPR Weekly Show. Coming up this week, we begin with a look at whether you should make use of the proximity tracking on the NHS COVID-19 app for your employees when they're at work in your workplace. We then leave COVID-19 and look at a salutary lesson on the disposal of USB drives. We then have news that the ICO itself is facing legal action for ending its investigation into real-time bidding without reaching any outcome or providing any real guidance to the industry. Staying in the theme of legal action, we have news of a high court legal action to be taken against Oracle and Salesforce in the UK which could result in a £500 payment to every internet user in the UK. We then travel across to Ireland, where biometric access at an Irish prison has been found to breach GDPR. And we then return to the UK, where the UK Cabinet Office has had a data breach, which has revealed individuals' telephone numbers and email addresses. We then look at what lessons can be learned after British Airways and Marriott Hotels both had their penalties substantially reduced by the ICO. And we then travel across to Sweden, where the Swedish insurance company Folksom has suffered a data breach, exposing the details of some 1 million of its customers. We then have news of a data breach at website Grow Diaries, which has potentially exposed the details of cannabis growers across the world, including, of course, in some countries where the growing of cannabis is illegal. We then travel to South Africa and compare the recently introduced POPIA Act with GDPR, and see what the differences are and where the similarities lie. And we then travel to India, where the Indian Data Protection Act is currently taking shape. And finally, we end this week in Slovenia, which finds itself now to be the only EU country not to give its ICO any powers of enforcement. And hence, the suspicion is that many companies in Slovenia are not complying with GDPR. So, as always, a mixture of articles for you this week. We hope you find the articles useful and informative. We'd also take this opportunity to remind you of our special episode of the show, which is going out live at 2pm on Tuesday the 17th of November, so just 10 days away, when we'll be looking at the changes to GDPR for both UK companies dealing with the EU and EU companies dealing with the UK as a result of the UK fully exiting from the EU on the 31st of December this year. We've got a really good episode lined up for you there and we would urge you to set the time aside to join us live because whilst the episode will be available for catch-up later, by joining us live you'll be able to pose any questions that you might have direct to us. You'll find further details about that show later in this episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And again, as always, if you have any feedback for us, please don't hesitate to email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com We do read every piece of feedback we receive and where possible we integrate your suggestions into future episodes of the show. This is an important coronavirus update. Stay home. Protect our NHS. We begin this week with an issue which a number of you have raised in queries to our help desk regarding the NHS COVID-19 tracking app and whether you should require your employees to use the tracking app and in particular the proximity sensing part of the app while they're at work. Well, our first thing to say is that you are not in a position where either A, you can make use of the app mandatory in your place of work, 
or B, that you can look to actually use that data yourself as your employer within the place of work. It's down for the employees to use individually and the data being handled by NHS Test and Trace. So that having been said, should you actually encourage your employees to use the proximity tracking whilst they're at work? Well, we've given this some thought, and in our opinion, it really depends on how you work. Let me give you two different scenarios. In scenario one, you have four staff working in two offices in the same building. All four staff come into regular contact with each other, either through work or in the kitchen when they're making coffee. We would argue in that case there's absolutely no benefit to having the proximity tracking turned on. Then let's look at scenario B. Scenario B is where we have a warehousing company spread over four warehouses, spread over a large geographic site. And staff can intermingle with staff from the other warehouses on the site. And they also come into contact with delivery drivers either delivering to or taking goods away from the site. Now in this instance we would suggest that it is beneficial to the business for employees to be encouraged to turn on the proximity tracking on their NHS app. So that should you have the unfortunate situation of having an employee go ill with COVID-19 or indeed you get notified that a delivery driver has gone ill with COVID-19 then the NHS app should in itself act to notify those members of staff who have come into contact with that person that they should now self-isolate and so it removes a lot of the administration from you as an employer and also should mean that you hopefully only have to shut down one shift or one warehouse rather than your whole operation because you'll know from the proximity app that no other employees have been affected assuming of course that you've got good COVID-19 control measures in place anyway which I'm sure by now you will all have. One final thing we would add on this is that you should of course all have by now have printed off a QR code available from the government website and display that QR code prominently at each entrance to your premises so that anyone entering your premises be they staff, be they visitors, be they customers or suppliers they can all scan in so that the app knows who was in which premises at which time which again greatly helps the NHS track and trace provider in connecting people together and so ensuring that the right people are self-isolating and just a reminder that if an employee is forced to self-isolate is told to self-isolate by the NHS app then you as an employer should not require that person to come to work in fact you can be fined up to a thousand pounds if you do so and as an employee if you've received a notification via the app that you should self-isolate you should tell your employer and a obviously you should stay away from work and work from home or come to an arrangement with your employer and b of course you must notify your employer because if you fail to do so you can be fined 50 pounds now no one wants to impose financial penalties especially at this difficult time and so hopefully this short guide has given you some help on whether you should be encouraging and i emphasize the word encouraging your employees to use the proximity sensing function of the NHS COVID-19 app. And now, the rest of this week's news. A note of caution for anyone using USB drives to transfer sensitive information this week. When Abertay University published its results of a study of 100 USB drives which they'd purchased and found that over 75,000 files were still intact on them, even though the people who sold them had told them they were empty. 
on the drives there were multiple instances of passwords being stored as well as in some cases actually people's banking details. It should be pointed out that all but two of the drives appeared empty at first glance but the university said that using publicly accessible programs it was worryingly easy to retrieve the data. Although some of the drives had been wiped properly 42 of the drives had all their contents recovered while 26 of them had files partially recovered. Professor Karen Renau from Abertaye University's Division of Cybersecurity urged people to use software designed to fully wipe drives instead of just deleting or formatting it, especially if you were selling the drive to an unknown buyer or maybe you were just disposing of the drive into the rubbish. She said an unscrupulous buyer could easily use recovered files to access sellers' accounts if the passwords are still valid or even try the passwords on the person's other accounts given that password reuse is very widespread and of course that's very true. Many of us use the same password across multiple accounts regardless of the fact that we're always told not to. So perhaps a salutary lesson there if you are using USB drives and you dispose of them either by selling them or indeed just by disposing of them do make sure that you've securely wiped them before you get rid of them. Here in the UK the ICO is itself facing a legal challenge after it took the decision to quietly close its investigation into the ad tech industry's real-time bidding operation. We've mentioned this investigation several times over previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, but to give a bit of background, the original complaint challenging the ad tech industry's compliance with GDPR was filed with the ICO in September 2018 by Jim Killock, Executive Director of the Open Rights Group, and Michael Veal, a lecturer in digital rights at University College London. A series of real-time bidding complaints have also been filed with regulators across Europe over the past two and a half years, and indeed we mentioned recently a case in Belgium where this has come before the Belgian regulator. The crux of all these complaints is that real-time bidding auction systems cannot comply with GDPR requirements to provide adequate security for people's data. In a report last year, the ICO voiced its own systemic concern about the ad tech industry's use of the personal data in the real-time bidding component of programmatic advertising. Last December, Simon McDougall, one of the deputy commissioners at the ICO, further warned the industry of the need to reform, writing, We have significant concerns about the lawfulness of the processing of special category data which we've seen in the industry and the lack of explicit consent for that processing. It's not at all clear why... The ICO has now chosen to close the complaint when it actually still hasn't issued a decision on the substance of the complaint. All we do know is that when COVID-19 first became prevalent in the UK and we had the first lockdown in March 2020, the ICO announced that it was putting the investigation on hold whilst COVID was having such an effect on their workforce and that of course is perfectly understandable. But They've not issued an explanation as we go to broadcast as to why they've now chosen to just simply close this investigation. In a statement, the ICO has said, We are aware of this matter which will be decided by the tribunal in due course. Consideration of concerns we've received forms part of our work on real-time bidding and the ad tech industry. In a series of letters to the complainant's legal team, the ICO writes that it believes it has investigated the matter to the extent appropriate and further claims the probe has assisted and informed the ICO's broader regulatory approach to real-time bidding since September 2018. The ICO then goes on to say, Please therefore consider this to be confirmation of the outcome of your client's complaint in line with Section 1654B of the Data Protection Act 2018. For their part, Keller and Veal have voiced concerns that the move is a tactic by the ICO to close down 
their ability to challenge any future action the ICO may or may not take in the area of real-time bidding. The follow-on concern is obviously that the regulator does not intend to take robust enforcement action against what the real-time bidding complainants have referred to as the biggest data breach of all time and is instead seeking to clear the road of objectors. In a statement, Veal said, We are taking legal action against the ICO as we believe that data processing being too complex and illegal is more reason to uphold the law, not less. Individuals can't currently opt out of online tracking and the ICO shouldn't be able to opt out of regulating. He went on to say, After the ICO produced a report in response to the complaint of Jim Tirith and myself illustrating just how illegal real-time bidding was, they appear to have concluded the appropriate action was to hold some stakeholder meetings, use none of their powers and claim they have discharged their obligations to the complainants to uphold the law. Real-time bidding conti- continues to be outrageously illegal. We would add, of course, that that last statement about it being illegal is the view of Mr. Bill and not necessarily the view of GDPR Weekly Show. For his part, Tillock said they shut our complaint down without doing anything. They say they will still take action, yes, but they removed the obligation to do something by closing our complaint. They think the information tribunal was a soft touch and won't listen to anyone seeking to change an ICO decision about a complaint of this nature, he went on. The information tribunal has in fact stated that it will only look at procedural matters relating to this kind of complaint. They are wrong to do this, and this is something we also address in this legal challenge. I think it is fair to say that while the ICO has voiced concerns about the lawfulness of real-time bidding and behavioural advertising, its bark has not been matched by its bite. The upshot of all this is that in the UK, internet users' personal data continues to be processed at vast scale by the ad targeting industry, representing the UK by the IAB, the Internet Advertising Bureau, with no way for people to know where their information might be ending up, nor exactly how it's being used. But... Given the COVID situation at the moment, on the flip side, government and public health websites in Europe have also been shown sharing data on users with ad trackers, as have commercial sites that offer help with sensitive issues like mental health. Earlier this month, the European Parliament called for tighter controls on micro-targeting in favour of less intrusive contextual forms of advertising. And as we previously reported, last month's preliminary findings by the Belgian Data Protection Authority cast doubt on the legality of the industry standard tool for gathering internet users' consent for ad targeting, with an investigation finding that the IAB Europe's trust and consent framework fails to comply with GDPR principles of transparency, fairness and accountability, and also the lawfulness of processing. It also found that the trust and consent framework does not provide adequate rules for the processing of so-called special category data, i.e. house data, political affiliation, sexual orientation, etc. And the UK and Belgium aren't the only data protection authorities currently investigating real-time bidding, or in the UK up to now we're investigating real-time bidding, because in Ireland the Data Protection Commission is also investigating real-time bidding, in its case in line with Google. When we have an update on the legal action against the ICO, or any further statements from the ICO, we will of course bring them to you, in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Important. If you have customers, staff, or suppliers in the EU, GDPR is changing from 1st of January. To find out more, listen to our special live edition of the show on 17th November at 2pm GMT. It's not just the ICO who are finding themselves in court. Two of the world's largest software companies, Salesforce and Oracle, will come under scrutiny in the High Court of England and Wales in what's been billed as the biggest digital privacy class action lawsuit ever filed. The suit, filed by privacy campaigner and data protection specialist Rebecca Rumble, 
is seeking damages that have been estimated in excess of £10 billion, which could conceivably lead to awards of £500 for every internet user in the UK. A parallel lawsuit in the Netherlands, backed by a Dutch group called the Privacy Collective Foundation, could take the total damages to more than €15 billion. In a statement, Rumble said, Enough is enough. I'm tired of tech giants behaving as if they're above the law. It's time to take a stand and demonstrate that these companies cannot unlawfully and indiscriminately hoover up my personal data with impunity. The internet is not optional anymore and I should be able to use it without big tech tracking me without my consent. The data these companies are compiling on ordinary citizens is terrifying. With their tracking technologies in use across the most popular websites, it's hard to escape from their data collection. Rumble said that although both software firms could ignore her complaints as a lone individual, by becoming a class representative on behalf of millions, she could more effectively hold the advertising technology industry to account. I don't believe that these companies who profit from the sale of my personal data to third parties currently respect the laws that are supposed to protect my privacy, she said. Perhaps £10 billion given back to consumers in England and Wales will change that. To give a bit of background, the lawsuit centres on the selection and processing of personal information by advertising technology platforms owned by Oracle and Salesforce, which use third-party cookies to track, monitor and select online browsing data and auction it to advertising platforms to serve targeted online adverts. This, of course, is very similar to the real-time bidding we were referring to in the previous article in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. These are the tailored ads that many people think seem to follow them around the internet and the data used to generate them can include the person's interests, location, income, relationship status, gender or sexual orientation, health status, age, level of education and political or religious leaning. Rumble's lawsuit, led by law firm Cadwallader, alleges that this process is done without clear consent and is therefore in breach of GDPR. For their part, a Salesforce spokesperson said, At Salesforce, trust is our number one value and nothing is more important to us than the privacy and security of our corporate customers' data. We design and build our services with privacy at the forefront, providing our corporate customers the tools to help them comply with their own obligations under applicable privacy laws, including the EU GDPR, to preserve the privacy rights of their own customers. Salesforce and another data management platform provider received a privacy-related complaint from a Dutch group called the Privacy Collective in the Netherlands in August 2020. Salesforce and the same data management platform provider have since received a similar privacy complaint in the UK from Dr. Rebecca Rumble. The claim applies to the Salesforce Audience Studio service and does not relate to any other Salesforce service. The spokesperson went on to say Salesforce disagrees with the allegations and intends to demonstrate they are without merit. Our comprehensive privacy program provides tools to help our customers preserve the privacy rights of their own customers. To read more about the tools we provide our corporate customers and our commitment to privacy, visit https colon slash slash www.salesforce.com forward slash privacy forward slash products. Oracle has previously described the legal action as a shakedown made in bad faith, condemned the allegation as baseless and failed to vigorously defend against it. It has not yet made any further comment. The lawsuit proceedings will be stayed until the outcome, which is anticipated in 2021, of the Lloyd v. Doodle case currently before the Supreme Court. If favourable, this could pave the way for opt-out representative actions for privacy breaches. We will, of course, keep a very close eye on this legal action as it proceeds on its way through the court system, and whenever there's an update of substance to bring you, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. To Ireland now, and the DPC, the Irish Data Protection Commission, has found a security system used in Irish prisons to be in breach of GDPR after investigating a complaint from a prison officer. 
The security system involves scanning prison officers' thumbprints in order to admit them through security gates. The system is in place at Castle Lee Prison. The complainant initially complained about the system to prison management and, and to his union, the Prison Officers Association, in early 2019 on the basis that the system contravened GDPR. DATCO stop it data, meaning data relating to identification by comparison of fingerprints, is specifically referred to in GDPR as an example of biometric data being personal data resulting from specific technical processing relating to the physical, physiological and or behavioural characteristics of a natural person which allow or confirm the unique identification of that natural person. Biometric data, when used for the purpose of identifying a natural person, constitutes a special category of personal data under GDPR and can only be processed if one of a number of specified legal bases is in place. A key aspect of this complaint was that there was no appropriate legal basis in place for this processing. The complainant alleged that he was told that as prison management and the prison officers' union had agreed to the implementation of the system, he was obliged to comply with the system, failing which he would be subject to disciplinary action. The complainant then made a protected disclosure to the DPC, the Data Protection Commission. The DPC has now investigated the matter and concluded in its subsequent report that the Irish Prison Service had not established a legal basis for the processing of biometric data at issue in this case under Article 6 and 9 of GDPR and or Sections 46 and 49 of the Irish Data Protection Act 1988-2018 to and that as a consequence, the processing of relevant biometric data by the complainant in connection with the setup and operation of the relevant key vending system in Castleby Prison is unlawful. In their response to the investigation, the Irish Prison Service argued unsuccessfully that the system was in fact subject to the Law Enforcement Directive rather than GDPR, and that Law Enforcement Directive, being a separate piece of EU legislation which runs parallel to GDPR, and which governs the personal data for law enforcement purposes, overrode GDPR. The DBC rejected this argument as a processing issue related to the employment relationship between the prison and the prison officer, the complainant, and so was within the remit of GDPR, rather than the prevention, investigation, detection and prosecution of criminal offences or the execution of criminal penalties by competent authorities, which is the remit of the Law Enforcement Directive. It is understood that the system in question was in operation in both Cork and Castlereagh prisons. It is understood that the Irish Prison Service intended to introduce a system in every prison in the country, although the findings of the DPC investigation have now put this in some doubt. The Irish Prison Service, in a statement, said that they had received a ruling and they were considering whether to exercise their right to appeal the findings of the DPC. If the prison authorities do appeal, we will of course bring you details of that in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great! I will try it now. The public technology website revealed this week that personal data, including names and mobile phone numbers, had been published by the Cabinet Office here in the UK and remained publicly available online for five days. A contract award notice published last week on the Gov.uk Contracts Finder website included, as many notices do, the full contract available for download in PDF form. Information on named representatives of the Cabinet Office and the supplier in question, Palantir, was redacted from the 109-page document, as were four full pages of text relating to the services to be delivered. However, the information in question had not in fact been removed, but merely covered over with black highlighting tool. The text underneath could be copied and pasted into another document, and email addresses could still be clicked on to automatically launch a new message to the recipient in question. The deal relates to a £20 million engagement for US big data firm to deliver a border flow management tool. 
A representative of the company and a member of the Cabinet Office Boardroom Protocol Delivery Group were named in a redacted section as principal contacts. In each case, their name, email address and mobile phone number was published. Public technologies say that they spotted the breach on Friday the 23rd of October, the day after it had been published. The Cabinet Office Data Protection Officer was contacted at 4.15pm on the Friday to alert them to the breach. The contract then remained available for download online throughout the weekend and the whole of Monday. It was finally removed shortly before midday on Tuesday, about two hours after the public technology had contacted the Cabinet Office Press Office to request a comment. The Cabinet Office has since confirmed that the incident has been logged internally, that the individuals involved have been notified and that Palantir had also been notified. A spokesman added that given that there were only three people's details released in the breach, that while it was redressable, it did not feel the need to report the breach to the ICO. And from our point of view here at the GDPR Weekly Show, we would consider that to be a correct decision. It really is a minor data breach, and so no need to involve the ICO directly at all. Another issue that a number of you have approached us about via our help desk this week is what lessons can be taken from the reduction of fines to both British Airways and Marriott Hotels in recent rulings from the ICO. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that British Airways originally was fined £183 million and after negotiation with the ICO, that was reduced to £20 million. And likewise, the Marriott Hotel Group was fined £99 million and in negotiation, negotiated down to £18.4 million. Now, the ICO has made clear in our conversations with them this week that while the COVID-19 situation and the effect that's had on the travel industry had a bearing on the level of fine eventually arrived at, it wasn't the only factor they took into account. And so we were able to take some useful lessons from that, which were that should you suffer a major data breach, and of course hopefully you never will, but in case you do, the ICO has confirmed that it will not apply the turnover ban set out in its draft internal procedure, but will apply each penalty on the applicable facts and particular circumstances of the data controller and data processor. It's also said that while an organisation's turnover and financial status remain a key factor in determining the level of the fine, they're not the only factor. The ICO will also take into account other metrics including the size, scale and impact of the breach and the need for penalties to be effective, proportionate and dissuasive because after all the ICO is there to try and prevent other people having the same problem in the future. Another thing that can have an impact on the level of the fine, and this is worth bearing in mind, is how promptly the data processor or data controller notifies the ICO, how cooperative they are with the ICO's investigation and whether they are willing and do indeed take all reasonable steps to mitigate the losses of data subjects and commit to a continuing programme of IT security improvements likely to lead to a reduction in future incidents. All of those items will also act to lower the level of penalty you receive from the ICO. The ICO have also confirmed that in all decisions in the foreseeable future, the impact of COVID-19 will be taken into account when determining the level of the final penalty. And finally, perhaps the British Airways and Marriott Hotels case do indicate that if you're unhappy with the level of penalty, then it's always worth challenging that legally and hopefully reaching a lower settlement with the ICO. So we hope they find that useful. As always, if you have any queries at all about any aspect of GDPR, then please don't hesitate to contact us. Just send us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com 
and one of our specialists would get straight back to you. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Bye kids. Thanks Mike. To Sweden now and one of Sweden's largest private insurers accidentally allowed several tech giants to gain access to private data in a breach that affected up to one million of its customers according to a report in Bloomberg. Folksom Group, which oversees about $50 billion in insurance assets, said on Tuesday that it had inadvertently shared client data with Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Microsoft and Adobe. The breach was discovered during an internal audit. In a statement, Folksom said, We understand that this can cause concern among our customers and we take what has happened seriously. We have immediately stopped sharing this personal information and requested that it be deleted. The insurer, which is a major investor in several of Sweden's biggest companies, said the breach occurred as it was trying to give its customers customised offers. But unfortunately, we've not done it in the right way, Jens Wilkstrom, Folksom's head of marketing and sales, said. The insurer says it has reported the breach to Sweden's data inspectorate. It has also asked that companies that received the data as a result of the breach delete it. Folksom also said that they had no indication that the information had been used by third parties in any improper manner. If we receive any update on this data breach, we will transmit to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Important. If you have customers, staff or suppliers in the EU, GDPR is changing from 1st of January. To find out more, listen to our special live edition of the show on 17th November at 2pm GMT. An online community of Mariana growers has suffered a major data breach after two related apps were made accessible online without use of administrative passwords. Grow Diaries was founded to provide support and practical advice for cannabis growers, but identities can remain anonymous with only usernames visible on the site. However, security researcher Bob Diashenko, who we referred to previously on the Public Show, has revealed that sensitive information relating to 1.4 million users of the Grow Diaries site, including passwords, email addresses and IP addresses, has been exposed. The breach occurred after two Cabana apps, open-source applications that are usually reserved for companies' development teams and IT staff, were left unsecured since September 22nd this year. Although the exposed passwords were encrypted, they were only encrypted using MD5, and this method has been tracked previously, meaning attackers could still potentially reveal the passwords in plain text form. Diashenko says he informed Grow Diaries of the breach and the online platform moved to secure its databases five days later. However, further communication has not been possible. It remains unclear if threat actors were able to obtain user information while it was exposed. As always, of course, to anyone who is a member of the Grow Diaries community or indeed anyone affected by a data breach, we recommend that you change your passwords as soon as possible. And not just on the site that might have had a data breach, but other sites too, because the hackers will attempt to use that data on other sites if they possibly can. Grow Diaries also warned that users should be extra vigilant against phishing activity, as threat actors could be preparing false emails in order to extract further information or install malware. One other concern, probably unique to this site, stems from the fact that of course many Grow Diaries users appear to be based in countries where it's illegal to grow marijuana. Threat Actors that have access to the data from the exposed Grow Diaries database could attempt to blackmail individuals by threatening to expose their activity to the relevant law authorities in each country. 
We've approached Great Armies for a statement, but not received anything as we go to broadcast. If we do receive a statement, we'll of course bring it to you in the next available episode of our show. A number of our listeners in South Africa have asked us how POPIA, the South African Data Protection Law, compares with GDPR. First thing to say is that GDPR applies to personal data of EU data subjects, regardless of the jurisdiction or where the data is processed. So if you're an EU data subject, it really doesn't matter where in the world the company handling your data is based, they still need to take GDPR into account. However, POPIA is only limited to personal information processed within the borders of South Africa. Another difference is that while GDPR only applies to information about living people, POPIA applies to information selected about companies, corporate bodies, trusts and other similar entities. Therefore, POPIA is much more extensive and rigorous than GDPR as information about vendors, suppliers or partners will be subject to requirements and conditions of the Act. While there are these key differences between the two pieces of the legislation, POPIA is certainly an important stepping stone on the way to South Africa achieving GDPR compliance. Organisations not in compliance with POPIA will not meet the requirements of GDPR, which in turn could make it difficult for those South African organisations to undertake international business. Rather like GDPR, POPIA is based on eight conditions for the lawful processing of personal data, which are accountability, the data processor takes on all responsibility for ensuring the rest of the conditions are met, processing limitation, strict limitations on what kind of data processing is allowed, including only processing relevant data with a specific purpose and allowing data subjects to object or withdraw consent at any time. Purpose specifications, so restrict the reasons behind data collection to specific, explicitly defined and lawful purposes. Essentially, data collection must revolve around normal business activity and your data subjects should be made aware of these reasons. It also contains a further processing limitation, which puts limitations on how organisations can further process data from their original intent, so that any further processing must be compatible with the purpose for which it was originally collected. In terms of information quality, POPIA stipulates that organisations must ensure collected data is complete and accurate. In terms of openness, regarding data process responsibilities under South Africa's POPIA, requires documentation of data processing activities and proactive data subject notification when data is collected. Rather like GDPR, POPIA also contains some security safeguards and outlines the security requirements described as appropriate, reasonable, technical and organisational measures which organisations must take to keep personal data safe. And finally, data subject participation, which defines the rights of data subjects, including the right to access their own data, to be able to request and receive corrections within a timely manner. We recommend that any organisation in South Africa does try to bring itself in line with POPIA because while POPIA is not yet 100% consistent with GDPR, any extra requirements to satisfy GDPR will be minimal and therefore you should ease your opportunities for trading both with the UK and other EU countries. To India now and on Friday a joint parliamentary panel sought details from mobile application-based companies about their priority goals to check data breaches. According to sources, the Joint Committee of Parliament on the Data Protection Bill 2019, chaired by BJP Member of Parliament Minakashi Lecky, sought detailed information from representatives of telecom operator Airtel and caller ID and spam blocking service TrueCaller, who deposed before it yesterday. The parliamentary panel asked companies about what data they collect from users and where they store it. 
The committee had earlier expressed concerns over data breaches by social media platforms and mobile application-based companies. The company said that they localise data, which in turn reduces response time and helps them offer better services. They said the data is stored in the countries where they operate. The committee asked companies on inferred data and said it should also be secured. However, the company said it should be kept out of India's Data Protection Act. The majority of members of the panel would agree that most users in India and across the world have no understanding of security and personal data protection. If users don't provide consent, they will not be able to use services, the panel members noted. The committee also sought the number of data being used for advertising or any other purpose. Representatives of Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Paytm, Google, Reliance, Geo, Ola and Uber have also put forth their views in front of the committee. The Personal Data Protection Bill, which seeks to provide for the protection of personal data of individuals and establishes the Data Protection Authority for this data, was introduced by, in the Lok Sabha by Union Minister of Electronics and Information Technology, Ravi Shankar Prasad, on December 11, 2019. The bill was later referred to the Joint Committee of Parliament. Important. If you have customers, staff or suppliers in the EU, GDPR is changing from 1st of January. To find out more, listen to our special live edition of the show on 17th November at 2pm GMT. And finally this week to Slovenia, which is finding itself to be the only European country which is yet to put any internal laws in place to be in line with GDPR. And as a result, its information commissioner finds themselves unable to impose any penalties on any companies within Slovenia found to be in breach of GDPR. There is a Personal Data Protection Act, ZVOP2, before the Slovenian Parliament, which has been in draft form for two years now, but is still showing no sign of coming any closer to being passed into principal legislation, especially given that the government in Slovenia, like every government across the world, really, is largely focused on COVID-19 at the moment and not on ratifying some data protection law. What this means is that in Slovenia, there are probably many companies in breach of GDPR who simply are carrying on regardless and not having any penalty imposed upon them. Now, this is dangerous, of course, because A, it may affect the impact of any other countries wishing to deal with Slovenia or trade with Slovenia and secondly at some point ZVOP2 will be passed into law by the Slovenian authorities and they may not give any lenience or lenient period for people to become compliant because they would assume some would say correctly some would say naively that companies would have been compliant since the 25th of May 2018, when GDPR came into force. Now, of course, it's for each Slovenian company to decide what to do, but we would strongly suggest to Slovenian companies who aren't yet GDPR compliant to take action to make themselves GDPR compliant, because at some point this new law will come into force, and you don't want to suddenly be running around with only a few weeks to get your act in order, if you can do it at a more leisurely pace at the moment, but you can get your act into order, you can get your company compliant with GDPR, and everyone's happy. As always... If you require any help with getting your company compliant with GDPR and you're based in Slovenia, please just drop us an email to our helpdesk at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get back in touch with you and guide you through the steps you need to take. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. 
please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Until next time, bye-bye.